CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Well, hello, Avery. So good to see you. I know you, myself, and our producer, Wynne, all in different locations today. I am in Paris for the ETHCC conference. Avery, where are you? I am actually on vacation this week in Lisbon. It's so nice to see you, Sam, and Wen, of course. Tis the season for summer vacation, though. I feel like so many people are outside of their normal spots, whether they're working from home or on full vacay or on partial vacay or checking out conferences. Everyone I'm chatting to this week is somewhere new and different and experiencing something fun. So yeah, that's July for you. Amazing. We will not disclose where Wynn is because she is the heart of the show and nothing can happen to her. So we do not want to compromise her location. But... This is actually an exciting episode for us, Avery. First, we're going to cover a couple of the stories of the week, and then we're going to announce some very exciting news. So story number one for you, your old workmates at Google just announced that they are allowing digital collectibles, also known as NFTs, NFTs, to be used in games and other apps. The team over at Reddit is actually helping them, which I thought was really interesting. And this is something that I know the gaming community has been really talking about. They're very excited because the idea is not only can you use certain characters that can be digital collectibles and can be on blockchain, but you can earn within certain types of play modalities. They are being very careful to say they're like no Ponzonomics, nothing that feels too scammy, which is also great. But um, I just wanted to get your thoughts. Like we keep moving ever closer to this idea of digital collectibles in gaming and Google's like stepping up to the plate. 
I'd love to see Google stepping up to the plate. And you and I have spoken many times about some of the big tech companies and their reactions to what's happening in the sort of decentralized world. Some jumped in and pulled out, like we saw with Instagram. Some jumped in. We haven't really seen exactly where they're going with it, like Salesforce. Some kind of outright rejected it through some of their policies and you know percentages, like Apple. And Google, you know, besides what they've done on the cloud side, which isn't necessarily the most tangible to like most mainstream consumers, they've done some stuff in Google Cloud and partnership with Coinbase and others um, in the space. This, I think, is a big move for Google, particularly because it's part of the Google Play Store. And the Google Play Store is, of course, you know, the app store, the rival of Apple and the Apple App Store. They have, you know, very clearly said they're not going to change their policies around like the percentages that they take. And that's obviously been a big holdback in sort of decentralized companies launching apps that sell NFTs because then they'd have to pay Apple a big percentage. So it's kind of been a friction point. So it's awesome to see Google Play making this move and starting to move a little bit closer to bridging the world of Web 2 and Web 3. And Reddit being an initial launch partner makes a lot of sense, given the tremendous success that Reddit has seen through the launch of their collectible avatars product, which, you know, is, I think, probably the largest scale NFT collection that's ever existed with millions of pieces. And, you know, they've tied it into all these fun things, whether it's free or some sort of limited payment structure for dressing your avatar and key outfits and key collectibles created by artists. I think it's a big move to have Google be stepping a toe into this space. And what I love about it is that there wasn't much fanfare targeted towards the sort of crypto native community. You know, there's, of course, notable publications like your own covered it. But it wasn't something where they were like, you know, trying to use DGen language on Twitter. They just kind of are doing this and, you know, seeing if there's a product market fit, which I love to see that sort of moving away from a hype train into sort of launching something and seeing the reaction from consumers. What's your take, Sam? No, I think you hit it on the head. And I also, I want to just respond to something you just said, which I think is really important, which is there is a group within the brand side in crypto that does, I think, really want to talk to the degen culture because they have a lot of money, frankly. But it is such a small group. I wonder how much harm that does us versus good in terms of the like wider evolution. It's great to get the thought leaders and quote unquote influencers involved. But I do think there's something about thinking too small in this game. And I think it's not, you know, when we start to like tick down the list, right, it's Google. And this is a big one right now. But as we talked about with Fortnite and Nike recently, Nike also has a deal coming with EA Sports that we know. We know Ubisoft is in this. We know Sega is in this. Unreal, which is part of Fortnite, but then also Unity and what they did with MetaMask and kind of the idea of, I think it was eight different chains being able to like connect into games. Axie is one of the first ones that's coming into the Google Play Store. So it does feel like there's a lot more momentum happening in this. And I think it was more just the idea of the true gamers being scared of what it meant to be on blockchain when they didn't know what blockchain is. And I think they're starting to get it. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing is that this really is about unlocking new opportunities. It's not about, you know, just who has the biggest bag wins. So it's just something I think that I'm pretty excited about looking forward to and seeing how, like, I don't know if you ever were like an EVE online player, but EVE is coming to Web3. And that I think is going to be a really big test to see whether the audience is down because EVE has a giant, giant community who I think if they can crack through, I think we'll see a ton of games rushing in. So I'm pretty excited about that. Avery, number two in our story list I'm sure you know that there is multiple Hollywood strikes going on right now. So there is the writer strike, which you knew about, but also SAG-AFTRA went on strike, Screen Actors Guild. 
And one of the things that came out in the conversation around that was as an example, what the studios were pushing for was that any background character could be 3D scanned and used in perpetuity on any production. So the idea is you get paid for one day as a background actor making 200 bucks and suddenly you can appear in anything forever. And this reminds me of all the conversations we have about AI and provenance and how, you know, the sort of larger companies haven't really talked about how they're going to monetize. But it is scary to think that an actor could get paid for a single day and show up for the rest of eternity as a background actor in other areas. And I also think when you look at just in general what the writers are worried about and what the actors are fighting for, both of them seem to be focused on this unknown thing that is streaming. And the idea that like, I mean, did you see that Snoop clip where he's like, how do I get a billion downloads and don't make a million dollars? Which is just an incredible sort of stat to think because he's like, I used to know how much money I made when records sold. So what's your sense of what's going on in Hollywood, how it relates to the AI world in general, but also how it relates to the idea of kind of creator royalties and creator rights? Yeah, so there's a lot going on in Hollywood right now. You know, there's two sides to the story, of course. So I want to like have empathy for both sides because that was what the strike purported that Hollywood had said. I don't think that we've seen that like verified by them, but that was what the strike organizers sort of communicated out that this was the breakthrough proposal that Hollywood had given them. They're like, that is ridiculous. You know, we are so far apart. And there was a very impassioned speech made by Fran Drescher, who was, of course, the nanny. Love Fran Drescher. Love her. And she just like verbalized this in such a human way, which I think really, it made the clip go viral and people over the world have seen it because they're very far apart in terms of their expectations and demands from sort of the Hollywood networks um, and producers. And then what with the writer strike and with SAG, and we actually see more and more sort of groups kind of joining. We're seeing the scale to other countries because I think the problems and the challenges that they're working through are, are not unique just to the United States. They're not unique to one specific group within the sort of production ecosystem. Actually, this is all over the place. And I think generative AI is the hottest topic to talk about, but really this is like years of bubbling over of, you know, being far apart on negotiation matters. So I think that the reality is that generative AI is going to change the way that the, you know, production ecosystem works, right? Like as a small example, like playing around with Runway and starting to use that on some of our campaigns. And it's just way faster and enabling this unprecedented level of more creativity and more speed when it comes to things like production. That's just one sort of point solution. And of course, there's a million. But I think that this is something that we can't ignore. And movie makers also can't ignore it. This is happening on the heels of what we've seen in the last decade of content creation being entirely democratized. Today's stars are not found by, you know, someone who's king making them the same way it was like 10 or 20 years ago. Today's stars are born on TikTok. They're born on YouTube. We've talked about Mr. Beast. We can talk about Coco Melon, all these, you know, groups and whether it's people or content creating sort of studios who are leveraging the power of the algorithms to build their own audiences and build their own brands. And of course, that is taking away time that people were previously spending watching TV, watching produced shows, watching produced movies. Now people are having more content than ever. And it's easier than ever for any person to make content. And, you know, studios aren't just competing with other studios. They're competing with every single person who has a phone on the entire planet, who's creating content that's going viral, that's capturing attention. And, you know, it's also sort of lowering the production bar of quality of like average outside of things that are just simply outstanding. And I think those simply outstanding like breakthrough moments 
you know, right now we're in Barbie summer, like everyone is talking about it because it's such a concerted marketing effort where it's everywhere. There's pink everything. Every brand is collaborating with them. Everyone is talking about Barbie. They did an incredible press tour. So you have some of those breakthrough things, but most of today's stars for, you know, Gen C are actually people that they might follow in their favorite social platforms that they might learn about. And oftentimes these people, of course, they work hard at the production, but a lot of the content they create is on their iPhone through something that's a much more simple apparatus. It's not requiring the same level of scripting and of details and production touch-ups that we see from, you know, a typical sort of Hollywood setup. I'll give Gary as a great example, right? Like Gary has built his career without the whole Hollywood production studio and, you know, makeup team with him wherever he goes. He just sort of talks to the camera and shares about his, you know, perspective and films his life and then uses that as entertaining content and educational and informative content. So all this stuff is coming together all at once. And I personally didn't expect this trick to go on for so long. And having SAG jump onto this as well, I think shows that this is a... industry-wide issue that is not specific to the writers and has to be reconciled. I think the challenging part though is the power dynamics are actually kind of shifting away from both like Hollywood and the writers and it's shifting into the consumers and it's shifting into the fact that anyone can create this type of thing that can be equally compelling. Like quality is a very subjective bar. So what is good content used to mean one thing and now it can mean many, many, many things. So I think it goes to show that AI is scaring a lot of people. It's also quite misunderstood, I think, by both performers and writers and studio execs. And I anticipate that we will see a lot more sort of working through this in the coming months. But at the same time, like the world never stops. And some other, you know, unknown writers, not part of a union is going to lean into this as an opportunity and create something. And I'm curious to see how this all plays out. I don't have a crystal ball in it whatsoever. But if I was to make a slight prediction, I actually think this will ironically go to empower the sort of self-made creators even more because we'll, of course, have missed, you know, a season or whatever it is of more professionally produced shows. What's your take, Sam? I mean, I think you're right about a lot. I think the thing that I struggle with is the power and creativity of the human mind as it relates to being able to write the next Star Wars series or to be able to act in the next Wes Anderson movie or be able to sort of create something that feels uniquely human. I'm a big fan of both short form and long form, but like I would not compare a three-hour Lex Friedman podcast to a three-hour Lord of the Rings movie. And I think that the audience does want those things to be distinct. And so you and I may differ on this, but I think that the idea of an acting performance, the idea of a truly creative, unique idea that becomes a feature film, like I just don't think AI would create the bear. And so I think that's where it is the human mind, because the human mind does things that are not predictable, whereas AI is always focused on the predictive that we just haven't seen. Like I've seen, you know, I mean, Rachel told us last week, she's like, AI created a great poem for me, but it was still mimicking poems of the past. And I believe great artists in all realms bring something really net new when they do this. And so I'm just hopeful, frankly, that we use it for production because I think it's amazing for production. I mean, I went down this rabbit hole last night where I couldn't sleep because of jet lag in Paris. And I was doing AI-driven headshots of myself. How were they? Well, I will say the AI thinks I look a lot more like Tom Cruise than I do. So in that respect, it's great. It also thinks I have like the largest forehead that's ever existed. So, you know, it's both good and bad, depending on how you look at it. But I still think I'd rather have 
Dave Krugman, right? Take my photo than ever having the AI photo because he's just going to bring a different type of perspective to it. So I think that's to me a little bit of where we're running into when it comes to Hollywood and even advertising. Like, again, I love the streams that we have right now, but like I keep going. My favorite commercial ever was Nike's Right Their Future World Cup commercial, which was like a three minute, had every popular actor and athlete in the world and is so emotional at the end, you like get out of your seat and cheer. You know, even though there's a ton of CGI in that and a ton of kind of automated processes, I just think like someone understood sports so well that they were able to create it. And I just hope that that's where we continue to go and that those writers and the actors should be compensated because the studios are minting money, right? So that's where I think we should not take away from the fact that David Zaslav at Warner is making $250 million a year and some writers can't make their rent. And so that doesn't mean every writer deserves to make their rent. They don't. But it means that people who are good still deserve like a great wage and they should be treated more maybe as creators in the way that creators are treated today than just a farm system of words. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm certainly not discounting the incredible power of like breakthrough creativity, which is only going to happen through humans, at least for now. I think it's a both situation though, where we'll see a rise of this sort of like generation of AI content creation and generative AI is the worst it's ever going to be is today. Like it's going to keep getting so much better. I look at like mid journey outputs from a year ago. I'm like, oh my God, those are horrible. Just like, you know, I look at Instagram in 2012 and it was horrible. You know, things just continue to get better. And I certainly don't think human creativity is going to be replaced and never can be. And it almost makes it like more special, more breakthrough when you have this sort of like human touch and emotion and context that like AI can sort of naturally never have. So I think it's a both situation, but I feel like that might've been like the straw that broke the camel's back, building off of years of friction. And like, these are not necessarily all net new problems. They just have come to a boiling point. I saw a great quote, I think from uh, Micah Johnson that said, Hollywood's closed, but web three's open. And I saw him post that on Twitter. And you know, it just kind of reminded me that like everything keeps moving all the time. So if you are a creator, if you are like a you know writer who's not part of this union, you're a creator who wants to put out a film or something like that, actually independent artists maybe could stand to benefit from this situation because there will be like a little bit of an opening because the longer this drags on, like, unfortunately, I don't think it's better for any of the parties. No, I agree. I think you're spot on. All right, let's quickly jump to our next story, which, you know, we've talked about gaming. We talked about movies. We're going to talk about music. And the reason I'm asking is Sound XYZ, which I think is really the biggest music platform out right now, just raised another $20 million. I will tell you, Avery, I'm not a big fan of tokenized music. And I keep trying to find the why here. Like Spotify is amazing because Spotify pays almost nothing to these artists and still has never driven a profit, right? And that's partly because of these like legacy deals they have with the labels where the labels make a ton of money. But there's also the amount of server space and infrastructure that has to go on to Spotify is enormous. And so I don't see that being replaced necessarily from a Web3 perspective. But I also don't see us getting back into the thing where like, oh, we're buying an NFT of a song for $50 because we want to support the artist when we can get it for free with our $10 subscription to Spotify. And so I did a little digging on sound. I just want to put this up for you to react to is when I went on to sound XYZ to say, I was like, what's happening in it right now? The top song and the most viral song are both a parody song about Vitalik Buterin. And one of them has about 700,000 mints, but it was all a free mint. So I was like, great, someone got a ton of data and now has them within the sound profile. So that was pretty good. The one after that was 1,200. So it was like the difference was like 700,000 to 1,200 was like the one and two. And the number two at 1,200 was also a free mint. 
So I was like, these artists actually are not really making a tremendous amount of money on sound. It says that they have paid out 5.5 million so far to artists, but now they've raised 25 million of that. So yes, they're building for the future, but is there something about tokenized music that I'm not getting? Or are you in agreement that maybe it's not a thing? So the Vitalik example, I think, goes to show what we were just talking about is people building for this narrow audience who are super into Web3, that they're extremely passionate. They want to share about it. They want to create earned media around it. Like Web3 is their thing. And I would venture to say that's probably people who are deep in the Ethereum ecosystem. And Vitalik is their idol and someone that they look up to a ton. You know, it's a hyper committed group of fans. I think that tokenized music potentially could be a thing if you can bring your music with you across the internet. That becomes really interesting that's just not yet possible. Like, if, hey, if I could bring that with me across my games, across my digital collection, I could identify with it. Then I could see sort of paying, I still think paying $50, like you have to be getting like meaningful value because like you just said, that's five months of Spotify. And, you know, it has to make sense from a value perspective for a collector. But if you add the elements to be able to take your music with you wherever you go, I think it could be interesting. I do think it's very early. There's been a couple of platforms that have tried to go into the royalty space as well, Royal IO. And I think that they raised around this narrative around how much a Web3 creators were making in comparison to Web2 creators. Andreessen Horowitz and A16Z had a great like graph that I remember, you know, studying and sharing quite a bit that came out like maybe a year and a half ago that showed how much Web3 and NFT creators made versus creators who were creating on YouTube or Spotify or, you know, Instagram, and the number was like 400x more. That was due to a particular moment in time and not necessarily something that's going to be sustainable. So I'm curious how that might affect their valuations if people are not spending, you know, hundreds to thousands of dollars on NFT mints, but are rather kind of looking at, you know, are bringing this product to an audience that is maybe more willing to pay like one to $10 for an experience like that. So I'm not ready to write it off quite yet. I just think that this might have been predicated on, you know, a value prediction that was based off 2021 pricing. You know, what's interesting is, you know, we just saw through the events app and co-create, you know, 5,000 folks got onboarded into new crypto wallets through Harry Styles at a show recently. We talked to Matt from Avenge Sevenfold and they're using a very community-based approach to their general audience. So I think it's not about tokenization doesn't work for music. I think the question is, has the form been found? And I think you hit something which is, I think, really interesting, which is the idea of if there was low cost ownership, but that ownership was portable. I don't think we talk about it very much here, but even our theme song, right, was a tokenized music NFT that I purchased a year and a half ago and it gave us the rights to use it. So it was a pretty low cost way for us to get a theme song out of it. So I do think there are some interesting things about it. I keep wanting to find a business model that I keep looking for, and it just doesn't seem to keep popping up, that understands the infrastructure realities of the music industry versus, cool, you want to support artists, be a patron. You know, that's OnlyFans, that's Patreon, you know, and maybe there's a Web3 version of that that we should be focused on. Yeah, you know, it actually has a lot of parallels to what's happening right now in the movie making scene. The music industry and the movie making industry both are very challenged by, you know, decades of sort of anyone can create it, anyone can post, and these Web2 platforms enabling this unprecedented scale, which has actually created issues for the labels and for the studios. I think that that means that both of these sort of groups have immense opportunity for innovation, and Web3 can be a part of that. We just haven't really seen it cracked quite yet. You know, on the movie side, we've seen many studios kind of go into experimentation in Web3, and again, they were targeting it to the Web3 native crowd. So it worked for a little bit, and then it didn't. And I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing in this sort of music example. 
it doesn't mean it's not an opportunity. It's just the positioning of it has to be a better value exchange system than what exists today. Little alpha for you, and we should definitely have some of these fine folks on the podcast, but we're actually working on something that's hopefully going to try to crack this opportunity for more of like a TV side of things. Because I think that these executives, whether they're music executives or TV executives, they realize that this is a broken process. You know, even Bob Iger just shared, he did a big piece that, you know, the process for making movies is very broken and they know it. They're just figuring out like, what's the next move? Well, excited to hear this alpha when it comes out. So we will keep our eyes on that. Avery, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, big announcement coming for Gen C, which I'm very excited to talk to you about. So we will see you in two minutes. All right, Avery, we are back. So we don't have a guest today, and that's for a very specific reason which is something that you and I have been working on and talking about for a really long time. I will say that the genesis of this announcement comes really from, I think, you more than anybody, which was, I think, being as brilliant and smart as you and your team are, understanding that Web3 may have been bigger than we were all thinking and wider than we were all thinking. And I know you shared some stuff on LinkedIn and you guys released some reports and some amazing infographics. But, you know, it really started to get us thinking as well over here about the idea that thinking through it through the lens of Generation C is this group that's really raised on kind of these new values or a new Internet, as opposed to just being raised on the blockchain, was a really important distinction to make. And so with that, you know, one of the things that we have done is we have kind of taken the C in Gen C, which really started as being Generation Crypto, and we started to redefine that C to be able to mean many other things. So. For full transparency, like crypto's had a pretty good last couple of weeks. It has. And that's everything from what's happened on the brand side. I know you guys did some releases recently with like 7-Eleven, but it's also, you know, prices have been holding pretty well. The Ripple announcement was really interesting. So we're not getting away from what crypto and blockchain are in how this new generation of people kind of reimagine their lives around the idea of money. But the C also means a lot of other things. So Generation C can not only mean generation crypto, but for example, it can mean like we were just talking about generation creator, right? The C can be about creators and the fact that creators themselves are in this sort of much more empowered world and it's evolved since the beginning of Instagram and Twitter. And so, you know, let's talk for two minutes. You know, what do you think as you project forward is the role of the creator, do you think there's any world where it diminishes from where it is or does it only grow? What's your take? Yeah, I think that we're going to see more and more individuals start identifying as a creator. We've seen this over the last several years and, you know, the creator economy is super real. I think that it's driven by a couple of things, but consumers are wanting like hyper-personalized content. Like you want to follow things that are interesting to you. I want to follow things that are interesting to me. And that's no longer like a hundred celebrities that we can all just like pine over. You know, there's fame in different little arenas and, and in different like cohorts, I'd say. So I feel that the creator economy is going to continue to grow and to thrive. And, you know, when we do studies and consumer research, like Gen Alpha, like they want to be creators, like that's their ideal job. And not like when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a lawyer which never happened. But, you know, that was what I thought, like I glamorized from like TV or something like that. And now kids grow up and they want to be, I want to be a creator on YouTube or Fortnite or 
TikTok or wherever else. And they also start to understand like the economics of doing that from a relatively young age. So I think we're going to see creators and not just young creators, like old influencers are a huge thing. My parents like follow different creators who are their age. Wait, did you just say old fluencers? Old fluencers are a thing, Sam. Yes. Not a genre I was expecting to hear. Yeah. Whether it's like senior citizen fashion or, you know, boomers like sharing different like tips about parenting or grandparenting, like we're in the era of the grandparent. So I think creator economy is going to continue to thrive and it will not only be you know, what people have in their minds is the creator economy, which is typically like that stereotypical Instagram girl who's like selling beauty products or reality TV, like teeth whitening. No, I actually think the creator economy is vast and wide and will continue to develop and will continue to be a source of almost talent spotting, letting consumers and of course the algorithms ultimately decide who becomes famous. So I think this is a massive thing and we're really just at the beginning. It's funny because many years ago at Vayner, we actually had an agency called Grape Story, which was focused on this and it got a little bit kind of commoditized for a while, but I actually think this like influencer era is kind of coming back around, but instead of influencers now, they are identified as creators who you know can come up with interesting, funny content and share that with the world. And the other thing I think is just different is, you know, I was working in the fashion industry and at a publisher in 2015, where we covered a ton of beauty influencers, but a lot of them were still kind of doing the same, showing up on Instagram in similar outfits and similar places, doing similar looks. And I think the creators of today are really, they're half DIY and they're half entrepreneur, right? Like you'll find the ones that are interesting chefs doing recipe development, who then also get to meet and work and do a pop-up, right? And it allows them to sort of have a different relationship. There's a ton of logistics that have come in to help creators expand to IRL opportunities and to other digital opportunities. And so I think it's creators as being influential versus creators as being influencers. I agree. Yeah, and I kind of look at it that way. You know, what Keith Lee does for restaurants is pretty outstanding on TikTok in the same way that, you know, I can find like someone who will teach me how to correctly like, clean my oven. I'm just really excited for us to maybe dive a little bit more, again, not into the influencer side of creator, but why creators themselves are so influential. All right. The next way that we are going to define C in Generation Crypto is the idea of the connected consumer. And I think this is really about how we relate with technology. I stole this straight from you. So I would love for you to kind of define with our audience what the connected consumer is. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing, you know, broadly is that consumers are more connected than ever before, right? Like screen time is up, up, up across everywhere in the world. Like mobile devices are omnipresent. People are sharing more than they've ever shared, both with the companies and brands that they engage with and with their friends and family and coworkers. They're on, you know, workplace apps, whether it's Slack or G Suite or the Microsoft Suite, like engaging there. Consumers are just ultimately super connected now. And all of that information is, of course, stored and shared and used to help make the products even more beneficial and useful. I think when we think about the connected consumer is part of Web3. It's really integral. It's really like these consumers are growing up in this digital first reality where they are connected. And that's why they expect this internet that's immersive and personalized and ownable because they're digital natives either born into that or if they've grown into that, especially off the acceleration from COVID. So I think this era of the connected consumer is very tightly tied to technology and their expectations of what technology can and should do to make their lives better and make their lives more convenient. 
And I think that also ties very heavily into what they expect of, you know, the brands that they engage with. They expect those brands to be connected and to have context and to make their digital experiences seamless and beneficial. I don't have to tell you that even little things like Apple Pay, right? Like everything is connected now across different ecosystems. And I think that connectedness leads to the interoperability that, of course, we believe is a core tenant of Web3 and the future of the internet is being able to move things from you know one part of your digital experience to another, which is a big promise that Web3 continues to make. And we've seen some strides towards that, but I think that we'll just see the connected consumer be even more powerful in their expectations and also in their sort of time spent engaging with these digital platforms. Yes, Avery, exactly. You've defined it so well. You've really taught me on how to think of the consumer in such an interconnected way. And I think that we are seeing the beginnings of all of these different pieces of the pie also connecting to each other with the idea of the connected consumer at the center, which I think is super excited. I mean, I think the next C's really are both community. I think they're also citizenship, right? The idea of digital identity is such a strong one, which is tied both to privacy to kind of governance of the world around you. I think we could even look at the idea of whether it's, you know, lens protocol on one side or threads on the other. And the idea that how you play in the world should be your own and not defined by the platforms you're on. And, you know, we are too early in the Web3 social discussion to know whether or not this is going to work or not. It's still an experiment. But I do think people seem to be excited about the idea that their communities, whether it's at the DAO level or at you know, 100 million person social networks are both areas of excitement where they want a little more agency over their beings and they want to have a say, I think, in how both they and the community express itself. Anything you want to add on community and the idea of citizenship and identity? Yeah, I think people want to be part of digital communities. Like the biggest epidemic facing our world today is like the loneliness epidemic, which we should definitely get into at some point. And I think people are craving the sense of digital community. And it sometimes it's, you know, things like NFT projects. Sometimes it's on things like threads where people are like, yeah, we're early to threads. So I think people are looking forward to this community and almost like helping build the cultural norms that go along with different protocols and different tools and different you know, digital first communities. And of course, I think that also ties into collectibles and their expectations around ownership. Collectibles can be the manifestation of that community, or, you know, there's a huge percentage of people who just like to collect things, whether it's silver spoons or handbags or sneakers or NFTs. I think digital collectibles oftentimes are kind of a totem for a community, a symbol, a way to express that you're part of that community, which of course we've seen in places like PFPs and NFTs. But I think this idea of digital first collectibles is also core to how we think about Gen C is this like collectible culture, but digital first, digital only, born in digital that often can sort of expand into IRL as well. Well, and as we've talked about multiple times earlier in this episode, Reddit, which is a more Web3 on-chain digital collectible, we also spoke with Roblox, right? And Roblox has their version of digital collectibles, which are also resellable, have a creator royalty tied into them, but those exist within a centralized system. So People want to buy things and whether it's here, they also, I mean, what was it? Um, Counter-Strike. I just saw Ryan Wyatt had a, a tweet recently that there was a guy who had been on Counter-Strike for eight weeks and sort of got very lucky and unveiled a new skin that he was able to sell for $160,000. That was wild. That was just completely wild, right? So, but I don't think that's an anomaly to these younger like Gen Z audiences, but it would be if I was telling my father about it, right? So I do think that's where this is really a generational 
challenge because I do think, you know, it's easy to tell someone of an older generation, oh, look at this vintage watch or car. And they say, of course, that's expensive. And then you tell them you have a skin for your gun in Counter-Strike and suddenly they're like, what? It cost how much? What was it? You know, and I just think it's like such a weird mind shift for most of them, which is about partly also about the cultural change that Gen Z is. That Gen Z is really about reimagining what culture is through the lens of technology because technology always creates an upheaval. You know, and whether it was TV or radio or newspapers or movies or, you know, the internet, every one of these has come with a lot of social upheaval that a lot of people don't know how to manage. And I think that's something we have to address. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think that the cultural change, you know, component of Gen Z matters a lot. Yes, technology creates upheaval, but there's also this just like changing of the guard. The reason that like it's even called Web3 is it's this next era of the internet that's marked by these kind of core underlying principles that I think signify that cultural change. Absolutely. And Avery, the final C, which we could not not talk about, is the idea of characters. And I think this is everything from our own characters that we are playing in these gaming worlds and these augmented worlds. And we will see them more and more. And, you know, when we see the Apple Vision Pro and all that stuff come out. But really, this is also where I think the world of AI and that AI is creating everything from companions to versions of ourselves to better ways for us to work and be a productivity. So I look at this as characters being AI, gaming, non-playing characters, NPCs, our digital twins, all the different stuff that's sort of coming up that augments our own humanity in different ways, which is such an exciting and somewhat scary place to be that I'm really excited for us to both explore that more and talk with the people who are pushing that envelope further and further. Any sort of takeaways on the character side of this? Yeah, I think that the character side is emerging as a big part of how people express themselves online. This main character energy that might exist in real life is also existing in sort of digital versions, whether it's avatars or NPCs, as you just said. I think it's a big part of how people are expressing themselves and coming into being of, you know, who they are online. So Sam, I want to say a huge thank you to you for being my thought partner and sort of co-working how we wanted to take this, because I think we started being very focused on Generation Crypto. And then we realized Generation Crypto isn't just characterized by crypto, it's characterized by so much more. It's characterized by this creator economy. It's characterized by digital collectibles, by connected consumers, you know, with this element of community and citizenship and ultimately cultural change that ties into all of it. I can't believe we thought of this many C words that fit neatly within our definition of Generation C, but the reality is that Generation C is expansive and is multidimensional and isn't defined only by crypto, though crypto continues to be a place where they invest, where they're curious, where they're keen across the world. Absolutely. And we also have to thank, I think, all of our listeners who, you know, week after week have come through, leaving us comments, recommending folks to talk to, telling us just generally that they're enjoying the trajectory of the show. Because I think we started just to realize we want to make sure that we are covering what feels like the larger conversation around this. It didn't have to, you know, we weren't so specific that everything we touched and talked about had to be on chain. And I think that was a little bit of a hindrance because there's so many interesting things that are related to what's happening. And there's going to be a lot of interoperability off chain and on chain that will occur anyway. So we should make sure that we're talking about that. So with that, I'm excited to see where we're going to go. I think it's going to open up a wide array of other types of guests that we'll bring on. And we hope they'll all be interesting. I think this is a ton of brand folks, I think, that want to talk about the macro versus the micro. And I think that's going to be really interesting to hear what they have to say. And just like, you know, you and I doing this journey together is always a pleasure. So I'm just excited to do that and be next to you along the way. 
It feels like the natural evolution of Gen Z. So listeners, we want to know what you think, if this is the right direction, what you're excited about, which C you identify with the most, and of course, any guests that kind of fall under this broader purview. We are certainly always will welcome guests who want to talk about on-chain activity, which I don't want to diminish. That continues to be something we're really excited about. Coinbase just announced a big sort of on-chain messaging functionality. If we should get some of them to come on soon and share that. Because I think, you know, on-chain continues to be an underpinning of how a lot of Web3 native builders are constructing their ecosystems. But at the same time, we can't ignore these major, major scaled shifts that we're seeing across the sort of broader generation of Gen Z. Absolutely. And with that, we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening in. Thanks, Gen Z. Have a great week. Spring, nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.